Hey guys, I really appreciate you all taking time out all the day to take in our podcast. We have a, a very, very special guest today. We just finished filming, although this is the intro. We had on Mr. Troy Hadid, a successful businessman, a very unique fella. He's all about getting the most out of his human experience and loving everyone and making sure everyone else enjoys their human experience. And it was quite a profound episode for me and I know for Jerome too. We, we thought about it. Yeah, it definitely opened up my mind also. But as someone who thinks the way that I do, it, it was good to hear that other perspective and learn from it. And I definitely think the things that you said could impact a lot of people, especially the viewers. Mm-hmm. So it was a good it was a good choice to have him. Yeah, for sure. it really was. A lot of things resonated with me. I hope, I really pray that you all take something away from it because that's the whole purpose of the podcast anyway. So, um, yes, we, we could jump straight into it. Yeah, let's go. All right, guys. All right, guys, we're sitting down with Mr. Troy Hadid. Thanks so much, Troy, for showing up on your podcast today. Yeah, pleasure. Love. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Yeah. All right, so we did your intro already, but... I want to hear your point of view of who do you think you are and what do you do? Wow, that could um, we could get deep real fast with that question. <laughs> That's okay. Not too long, but you yeah, know, yeah, give yeah. Us a well, um, I've I've come not to believe too much in labels because right. I believe that um, if I say I'm a yoga teacher, well, and who am I when I'm not teaching yoga? If I say I'm an author, well, and who am I when I'm not writing? Right. Um, and I think we, we get really attached to all these labels that we put on ourselves. Very true. So for me, what I've come to really identify with is someone who attempts or hopes to connect people to their own understanding of God in a different way and remind people what it means to love. Mm. And in that, you know, I have this new book coming out, not to plug it first thing, but the name of the book is My Name is Love. And that wasn't always the name of the book, but in the very last stages of developing a manuscript, it's like, it just made sense. Um, And I think when we identify with these labels and these names and these forms, even by me identifying with Troy, Troy is now separate from Kristen and Jeroen, right? Mm -hmm. So... That right away we're born into a world where we're, we're made to be separate and other. So um, I identify with love. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, well, let's jump into it then. So, Troy, you know your life story better than us. Um, so I'm giving you the freedom to start wherever you want in your life because, as I said, you know it better than us. You know which instances occurred in your life that helped shape who you are, yeah. what you like, how your outlook on life. So I'm giving you freedom to start wherever you want and we'll work from there. I could real talk, eh, guys. That's so, all right. We could. Well, when put on the spot, I could real talk. So feel free to jump in or stop me at any point nah, in you time. Go ahead. Bring I, you here to talk. I won't rant too much. Um, but when I look back at my history and my upbringing and what shaped me, there's one thing that really jumps out to me that shaped who I am today. Okay. And that is privilege. 
not privilege in the sense of, you know, when we think of privilege, we think of race, financial status, mm -hmm. whatever name, that kind of stuff, gender relations. I think the biggest privilege that exists in the world today is the privilege of security, the privilege of knowing what it means to be loved and feeling secure. And that has shaped me in a massive way. And I believe that if, if we don't own our privilege and acknowledge our privilege, it owns us. And what I mean by that is, you know, privilege is almost like a bad word. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be called privileged. Well, you know what? I am privileged. And I grew up ashamed of my privilege. When, I, you know, I grew up, living in Garry Park. My name is Hadid, which comes with a certain stereotype as of well. Course, yeah. And uh, I didn't want to tell people my last name because mm -hmm. I didn't want them to see me as separate or other or stush. Or, or, or labels, yes. like you just saying. Yeah, or whatever now we might call 1% or whatever, right? So I avoided a lot of time telling people my last name or where I grew up. If you ask me where I lived, I would tell you Point Kumana, Karanaj. I would tell you Good <laughs> Park, right? And um, there came a point where I realized that if you don't acknowledge and own your privilege, it benefits no one else but you and your inner circles. Sure. But if you can own your privilege and acknowledge the benefits and advantages you have and realize there's really no shame to that, no one was chose to be chose to be born into certain circumstances, right? Or families or whatever. But what we do with that privilege is really important. And you can't, if you don't own your and acknowledge your privilege, you can't use that to serve something greater than yourself. So without going off, going off on a tangent, I would say that my my experience of security and safety and love no matter what you know I grew up in even from my friends and my family even when my views were very outside of the box and I pushed against everything that was normal mm -hmm. and my family thought that my decisions were absolutely ludicrous mm -hmm. there was always love and support I never felt abandoned you know, and um, I think in a lot of ways that has shaped me to be who I am today. It's, it's given me freedom to question my conditioning and question what is normal and, and decide what I wanted to believe in, what I stood for, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that shaped me in a lot of ways. People often ask, um, you know, I've been teaching yoga now for sharing yoga for what almost 50, 16 years, maybe 17 years. Mm -hmm. And I've traveled quite a bit, to a bit to teach. And people often ask, well, how did you find yoga? What was your first influence of yoga? You know, I grew up in a Catholic home. Not that yoga is different from mm -hmm. Catholic beliefs at all. That's a whole misconception. That could be another four-hour podcast. <laughs> but um, people ask, well, how did you get into yoga? And uh, this story is is um, a really powerful one to me and, and means so much is for 20 years, I've been talking about this experience where I was in Fatima College. 
And every lunchtime, I would go up to sit down, give up my lunchtime and go and sit down and spend time with a teacher called Mr. Gayadine. Okay. And I remember that he would, he gave me a text on Brahmacharya to read. Now, Brahmacharya is an Indian teaching that revolves around sexual misconduct and sexual energy, right? I was 14 years old. So um, I remember that officially being my first influence of yoga as we label it and know it today, right? So I often talk about that experience as being my first influence of that. And I always said that I wish I could meet Mr. Gaidin again to see, to tell him how we may have possibly influenced my life. Because mm-hmm. my next influence of yoga after Mr. Gaidin was, um, sure, I went and dabbled in Eastern cultures and Eastern traditions and tried to learn as much as I can. But when I came back from university, people would ask, well, what are you going to do with your life? I'll say, well, I'm going to teach yoga. And they'll be like, well, do you practice yoga? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> but there's something inside of me that knew I was going to share and teach yoga. Mm-hmm. But back to Mr. Gaidi. For years, I, I often, I always said, I wish I could meet him and see him or talk to him and share with him. And uh, a few years ago, right before the pandemic, I got this message in my email inbox. It came from my website where people at that time could leave comments. And most of them went to junk because I had it set to to go to junk because most of it was spam. And this one snuck through. Mm -hmm. And it said, I think I gave you practice of Brahmacharya to read in 1994, Fatima College, as Gaya Dean. I was like, what? Wow. So I, um, I replied to him, of course, all excited. I said, Mr. Guiding, send me your number. So I call him right away. And he said, first of all, call me Sylvan. I'm no longer Mr. Guiding. And he explained to me, he said, let me get your story straight for you. He said, you were sent to detention. He said, that's how you first came into my room. Is you were sent to detention. And he said, I gave you... We practice a Brahmacharya to read because that's what I would read in at the time. And um, he's not, he explained to me, he's not Hindu. He's not a yogi. He just happened to be reading that book at the time and gave me it. I mean, it's kind of like, to me at least, it would kind of be a joke to give a 14-year-old boy, sure. mm-hmm. you know, this text on sure. sexual conduct and misconduct. Yeah. And he said, I sat down there and I devoured it. And then from that point on, I came up to detention of my own free will every lunchtime to oh, read more and read more and read more, you know, and my friends used to make fun of me because I would go up every lunchtime to sit with him and read these books. And what to me is even more powerful and amazing, he says to me, he says, it's funny that you've been talking about me for the last 20 years and how I may have impacted your life. He said, because I've been talking about you for the last 25 as this 14-year-old youth who, who displayed this commitment and this whatever, this, this really just wanting to come and learn and study. And he said, I now teach in Canada, Ontario. And how I found you is that I was telling my class about this 14-year-old kid called Troy Hadid. And they Googled your name. And... 
They said, do you know he's an international yoga teacher? And he said, that's when he was like, what? So and just imagine how he felt oh, hearing that. Yeah, and he goes on to say that, um, I believe these were his words. He said, the synchronicity we've had talking about one another and how we've impacted one another's lives without a word in over 20 years. And um, it just tells us that, shows us that everything we do, every word, every action, every thought, even what might seem completely insignificant and meaningless could change someone's life. You know? So true. So yeah. true. That's really a magical thing. Yeah. Um, as you said, you had um, these disparities in the views of you and your family. And you said your friends would make fun of you in school for growing up. And were you always different as a kid? Um, I think I was a little, um, little strange, uh -huh. you know. Um, yeah, I, I think I was always kind of dialed into to something a little bit different. And again, I think that from my upbringing, you know, my mom, I grew up in a Catholic home. My mom is, my mom and my dad both had such beautiful human beings. I grew up seven years younger than my two brothers. So I imagine that in a lot of ways, I kind of grew up like alone. The Solo. Outsider, yeah, I mean, or, but, but I mean, not really, because I remember being around my older brothers and they always meant so much to me and still do. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was so much younger, you know. Right. You know, I, um, I remember, one thing I do remember is being in my early teens or maybe now going into my teens and making a choice not to um, drink. So... My first sip of alcohol was at 27 years old, and that was a sip of wine. Wow. And I now would drink a half glass of wine, but that, um, growing up in Trinidad, I'm seeing your face scratched on it, like, what? <laughs> so I actually have no idea what it is to be drunk, intoxicated on alcohol, mm. you know? And when people hear that, they're like, what? And you grew up in Trinidad. So yeah. You know? Um, but as a, as a youth too, I had two main, two really powerful major influences. Well, maybe more than two. I mean, one was I always felt in some way really connected to God or Christ and the teachings of Christ. And when I say that, I mean outside the box of religion. Because I think from a really young age, I kind of raised my eyebrows. Like, well, this really makes sense. You know, this is not what Christ would have taught. Again, that could be a whole different podcast. Mm -hmm. Unless, I mean, we have two hours. So who knows, right? I'm curious uh, to know what you mean by that, though. Yeah. Well, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Because you experience it, too. Yeah. But so I, do. I would just mention before we get to that, that could go down the road. I know. Two other influences I think I had as a kid was reggae music and Rasta culture had a massive influence on my life, you know, massive. Mm -hmm. And then when I was um, a kid, I was destined in my head to be the next Pele. <laughs> I used to wake up at 4 a.m. every morning and go in the backyard and train by oh. myself. And to be honest, I wasn't, you know, I tell the story in the book a little bit. I wasn't the most talented. I wasn't the most skilled. But I was committed, Reds. Mm. When I wanted it, I was, I was committed and dedicated. Um, so I think through those influences, early influence of wanting to be an athlete, 
I just never wanted to drink because I didn't see that those two things meshed. And then um, even the influence, people people would often associate reggae and Rasta culture with cannabis and mm-hmm. herb smoking. Mm-hmm. And um, I've never been a herb smoker. I won't tell you I never smoked herb, but I've never been a herb smoker in that sense. And people, that often confuses people. How can Rasta and reggae culture have such an influence on your life, but you choose not to smoke herb? Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly why I choose not to smoke herb. Because... Rastafarian culture and understanding views cannabis as a sacrament. It's a holy sacrament. And even from a young age, I could see that socially in my eyes, it was being misused. And I think that for me early on was to make a choice to say, yeah, no. As I I don't believe in herb socially being used in this manner. Mm -hmm. So that was my way of taking a stand. Um, and drawing a line on that, you know. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. But you didn't think about using it in a spiritual sense? Yeah, and I have. That's why I say I would never say I have never mm-hmm. used herb. Um, I have. And to me, it's always very seldom. It's not very often at all. Maybe once a year, every few years even. But um, it's always ritualistic. Okay always in a setting of creating a scene of prayer and ritual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you don't use it for like introspection or anything? Like when you're nah. I mean, that would come. But for me, for me, I believe in, I do very much believe in, at least for me, everyone's different, right? Mm-hmm. In being fully dialed into what is happening in your body. And I don't want to use being in control, but being in relationship too. And I think there's, there's great power to introspection under what I could only refer to as sober head, right? Mm-hmm. Sure, you have a lot of people now using plant medicine or psychedelics. And all of that is great. I think it's all medicine. Mm. But I think what is medicine can very quickly become poison if misused. Yeah. And I think that is what is happening in a lot in a lot of these realms you know but but to be able to to answer your question to be able to use these things responsibly as medicine i believe that under sober head there needs to be a certain level of consciousness and awareness to be in relationship to these things and not overpowered by them Mm. yeah okay that's that's that works for me at least that's powerful yeah um, actually, I want to touch on a story from that I heard on one of your podcasts, but I didn't hear you go deep into it. Yeah. It's a story from your experience in University of Tampa, mm-hmm. where you had four months at sea or something like that. Yeah. And you said you learned more in that four months than you did in your four years at school. Yeah. So I kind of want to hear about that experience. Yeah, I was fortunate enough. They have actually one or two other <coughs> trainees that have also done it. It's a program called Semester at Sea. Mm. And what happens is you go on a boat for four months, four to five months or something, and you travel well on this boat. So fresh. Now, I want to be clear. This is in a sailboat and a yacht and you're learning to sail or nothing. This is cruise ship vibes. Right? It's like a low-end cruise ship. So it's a big ship with a thousand students. 
And what happens is while you're at sea, a curriculum is like you, like any other university. So it's like a study abroad program. And while you're at sea, you don't have days every week. You have A days and B days. So while you're at sea, you have no holidays. Mm. While you're on the ocean, you have A days, B days, A days, B days, A days, B days, and you have A day classes and B day classes. Okay. And then when you dock in a country, you have, sorry. No, sorry. Yeah. You <laughs> so, have to go? Yeah. You still have me there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're good, you're good. When, when you dock in a country, you have no class. So you have five, seven days to go and explore or whatever it is. And, mm, you know, right. sometimes you do these organized tours or excursions. Um, and sometimes you just roam, mm-hmm. see what has to offer. And... I think those um, those four months were eye-opening in so many ways because, you know, I think I imagine like a lot of people growing up as a teenager and then into early 20s, all you want to travel. You want to travel, you want yeah. to see world for a lot of people. And um, I think when I came back after those four months, it's not that I didn't want to see world anymore. It was kind of like, I cool. I just see the wheel on a ship. I experience all these things. Mm. I work to do now. You know, okay. it was more like, all right, I work to do here in Trinidad and I have to create a purpose that serves something greater than myself. Um, so I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'll still travel and I travel and teach and travel and speak and, and whatever it is. But um, I have to say, it's almost like I no longer have that bug to, yeah, well, I'm not going to go and backpack across Europe. You know what <laughs> I mean? You're fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. I think that's something that you get what it has to offer. And then it just, in like all experiences in life, it just directs you as it needs to. And it might direct mm-hmm. everyone differently, you know. So why do you think it directed you back to Trinidad to serve this purpose? Um, I don't know. I just... For one, Trinidad a really amazing, beautiful place. And um, as much as there's a lot about it, we would like to change. It's, it's a, I have no words for it. It's a really majestic, special place. And the people also um, as well. But, you know, we, we are challenged, in my opinion, with a culture and a conditioning that I can only describe as prehistoric. It's very um, boxed, it's very controlling, it's very limited, it's very closed and short-sighted. Um, and I think that that has the shift for Trinidad to have a future. Trinidad and Tobago to have a positive, nourishing future that has to begin to shift. And for that to shift, it means that, you know, and I was saying this to a friend yesterday, is... We have to begin to look at our conditioning. We've all been conditioned by our circles, by our friends, by our culture. And what intelligence is to me is the ability to question that conditioning. Because if we can't question our conditioning and what we think we believe and ask ourselves, where did that belief come from? Who does it serve? What agenda does it serve? And we might recognize that, yeah, that conditioning actually creates separation, otherness, judgment. It creates misalignment in the world. So we can only recognize that. And it takes a certain amount of intelligence when we recognize that 
to now have the courage to begin to shift it. And I think there's a lot of conditioning in Trinidad and Tobago that needs to shift. And, um, you know, you see it every day. And I guess that, of course, I didn't have these words or this explanation back then, you're talking 20 some years ago. But, but I just felt like there's stuff that needed to be done here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you think we could get the people at Trinidad and Tobago to reach this level of intelligence to, to realize this conditioning and kind of transcend that? Man, I don't know. That's a, that's a um, humanity question. Because mm-hmm. it's not just Trinidad, right? It's happening all over the world. Yeah. I, um... It would just be like conversation and just yeah. expanding the people that you're around. Because... People would find it hard to relate to others if they have never spoken to them. They don't know what they've been through, like how their lives are. So I feel like it's a matter of just getting people to get out of that little circle that they stay in. Yeah. Making friends, making friends of different races, people from different yeah. backgrounds or whatever. And then you, you open up because those are the people who are the most open. People who have different people in their lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Conversation is huge. And the right conversation with the right intentions. Now also consider this, because what you're saying is 100%. But what I've also recognized coming back to privilege of safety mm-hmm. is that when someone feels safe, they are more able to challenge the normal and challenge the conditioning and speak up against social voices and mm-hmm. saying, yow, dying right. Because their experience and their conditioning is that they're safe. It's not that they're going to be punished or they're hung mm-hmm. or they're afraid to take a risk because they're going to fall on their ass and no one's there to help them back up. So, so what I'm getting at is this. Majority of people in, in Trinidad and Tobago, where third I I mean, for me at least, I don't know the details of economics and what would rate what, what. In my opinion, culturally, with regards to our level of consciousness, we are by all means a third world nation. Right? I agree with you. So, and in this third world nation, there's a huge majority of people that do not feel safe. Not only by people around them and their neighborhoods and their family and friends and circles, but they feel the system has never looked out for them. So if you grew up in a world or a country or island where a system has never made you feel safe, has never looked out for you, well, one question is, how are you ever supposed to care for that system? How are you ever supposed to really care about other people within that system? That system had never made you feel safe and secure. That's one question. But to come back to what we were saying, if you don't feel safe, then you're going to have a hard time challenging a normal. Because the second you raise your hand against what is socially accepted, you feel like you're going to be judged or criticized or ostracized. And um, just to look at that conditioning plays a massive part in someone's ability to to be authentic, Mm -hmm. to voice their concerns Mm -hmm. and go against what is considered normal. That's so true. 
also, do you think that um, if you're in a position where all of your like time and energy is spent on like just pure like survival, you wouldn't have that time and energy to put towards trying to make change or like as you say, challenging the norms or whatever. Yeah. If you're studying, how are you going to pay for food later that night? You don't care about unity. Right? Exactly. You care about you and your family. Yeah. Not mm. only that, it's like, even things like self-development. Mm. You want me to go to yoga class? <laughs> you want me to read a book or do an online yeah, course? Spread. I just trying to put food on the table, yeah. like you're saying. That's true. Yeah. A lot of people in, uh, are in survival mode like that. There are a lot of other people. Yeah, and that's what we have to um, recognize. It's such, you know, it's so, it's such a powerful understanding because you might have an interaction with someone and then you might be like, in your head, you'd be like, what's wrong with you? From their perspective. Yeah, and then what you're not realizing is that individual working three jobs to raise six children as a mm. single mother. Yeah. Could barely put food on the table. Had to travel four hours to get to a job where her boss is giving her a hard time for being two minutes late. And you know what I mean? Yeah, that's it, so true. Yeah. It's, like, it's like the difference between money problems and life problems. You know, people who already have money are like, you know, money is not the answer. Money doesn't bring happiness or whatever. And then people who don't have it are like, oh, money will solve my problems. Because money will solve their problems because they, their problems are like the basic needs. And then once you get past that, that's when you can sort of like focus on like yourself and like purpose and like happiness and things. But as you said, you don't really have time to study happiness when you're still to eat. Like, yeah, that's true. That is your happiness. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Um, your children and then. One of the um, most, one of my favorite quotes I use in the book, I don't want to cite the author now because for some reason I can't remember it. But um, it's privilege is blind to those that have it. Yeah. And it's so, it's so powerful to really look at that because there's no way I can tell you what you feel or your experience of something is wrong. Mm-hmm. That is impossible. That is, I can't do that because I've never walked in your shoes. And we talk about this all the time. But I think sometimes we have a hard time talking about things and connecting dots to how it shows up in our lives, you know? Yeah. And I am. And I also feel like, as we were saying earlier, conversation is very important. Because if you come from privilege and every single person you know also comes from privilege, you have no opportunity to explore your privilege because no one, you would, you would no one ever point it out. Exactly. If everybody's always just a certain thing and, and everybody you know agrees with that and you don't ever have someone who didn't grow up like that come and say, you'll hear what you'll say. Yeah. You never have the point to think about. So you just go with like ignorance. And so that's why I say sometimes it might not be their fault really because they just never had the opportunity to explore it. But if given the opportunity and then they ignore it, then okay. Yeah. But so that's why, yeah, as you say, you have to put yourself in their shoes, everybody's shoes, and see how they live life and how they view life. Yeah, absolutely. The only way to really understand the impact of our privilege is to understand the experiences of people on the other side of that privilege. So for me as a straight man, if I want to know what my privilege is as a straight man, I need to go and speak to someone who identifies otherwise, with another sexual orientation. Same thing with race, as a man of light skin. Right, I need to understand, well, what was it growing up in Trinidad with darker skin? You know what I mean? And that goes in every way, whether it be financial or religion or you name it. There's so many privileges that we don't understand. I identify having two legs. I have a friend called Bruno who's um, 
who's paralyzed from the waist down. And um, he's from South Africa and his story is in the book too, which is absolutely phenomenal. But, um, you know, all these things that we take for granted because they, they are our normal. But, but for us to really see that, it, we have to create time to, like we're talking about introspection, we have to create time to really look and see what's coming up and start to question and these all those things, you know. Mm-hmm. I really agree with that. I feel it's important to have those conversations with people to get their point of view, what they're going through. But at the same time, I feel that's a real tough thing to do because if you go through something, say your mom dies and my mom dies, we would not experience it the same way just because of our makeup. Yeah. Right? So it's a tough thing to do, but I agree with it. Yeah. And you know, a, a cool story that comes to mind pointing to that same thing is I remember there was a point I used to own a store called Mystic Hemp. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, on RPT Avenue, a big hemp cannabis store, right? Yeah, Amanda, I know that was your first business yeah, you went into. And I didn't smoke cannabis. You know what I mean? <laughs> so people are like, what? So I have this stereotype as a hip smoker. Anyway, whole different convo. But um, we used to do a lot of, or try to do a lot of environmental work, beach cleanups and all this kind of stuff. And I identified in my head with someone that was trying to be some kind of environmental activist of some kind or whatever. And I remember this drive back from the North Coast and driving behind a car and I saw someone toss a box of KSC out the window, mm. right? Now, back then... You know, sometimes we get so identified and caught up and almost self-righteous in what we think we believe. And things like that used to get me outraged, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how the hell, what is wrong with you? You know, get you mad. And um, that moment, I don't know what it was, but that moment when when I saw that individual do that, I was, for a moment, the outrage hit me. And I was like, what the... And then... All of a sudden it stopped and and I realized in that moment that one, that individual probably had no one to show them or teach them why throwing that box of KFC out the window was actually not good. No one actually cared about them enough to educate them about that. Secondly, they probably grew up in a world and environment like Jerome was saying where they are just trying to survive. They're trying to make it to tomorrow and you're telling them to take every environment so, so the world can exist for That's another yeah. 300 years. They're just trying to survive till tomorrow, tomorrow. Brands. Mm-hmm. And then you're trying to tell them, well, be courteous to everybody else. Really? They might grow up in a, in a system and society where no one, not even a system has ever cared for them. And you ask them to care for everyone else and not throw a box of care. How do we know? Rich. You know, so for me, I think that that shifted for me, um, started to shift the understanding that, you know what, I didn't want to run a retail store anymore. That it's not that I didn't want to do environmental work in that way or whatever, it's that I saw something bigger that needed to happen first. Mm And that was the understanding of people, the consciousness of people, the how how we treated people and our relationships to one another um, had to shift first. Mm-hmm. 
And it's not that anyone is more important or, or, or less important. For me, that's when I, I think I recognized that there was something that had to happen consciously and spiritually within people. And I think that's what kind of gave me the push as well to, um, to kind of move towards yoga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one thing. So, um, it's a two-part question. Mm-hmm. Have I see you as someone who is very open to having these kinds of conversations with people. So, have you tried to have this conversation with, like, your, like, extended family out your household and, like, the circle around them? And also, have you received a lot of backlash for doing that? Because that may be against what they deem to be normal. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, yeah, yes, these are conversations I have. Um, there are often a lot of things I talk about in as a, as a teacher in the yoga space because I think when someone walks into a room for me to share with them, share yoga with them or talk about life with them or whatever, that now means they're receptive and they're open to at least hearing what I have to offer. They may not agree with it or take it and that's fine. In personal relationships... Uh, we have to understand that, one, not everyone is ready, right? For someone to be open to understanding these things, they have to start to question their own conditioning and what they believe, right? The problem with that is we identify with our beliefs and our conditioning as if they are who we are. And we saw this in the pandemic. If if I said I was pro-vax and you said you were anti-vax, all of a sudden we're on different teams and we're at war mm-hmm. just because we had different opinions. Yep. And I think from me, you know, I always talk, don't want to stray too much on this yet, but I refer to what I call the human identity crisis. And that is my identity as an individual being Troy in my body. We all have it from the day we're born. We told you are Christian, you're Jerun, this is your body, this is who you are. The second that happens, you're made separate and other from everyone and everything else around you, right? As we grow up, we have our own labels. I am a yoga teacher. I am white. I am straight. I am this. I am that. I am, I don't know what you want to call it, Republican, Democratic, but we identify with our beliefs, like they are part of us. They are who we are. I am this. But what we do when we do that is we limit our growth. Because we get so attached to this one belief or this one understanding of the world. It becomes who we are. And we draw a box around ourselves. And we defend it. Exactly. And we defend it because we feel attacked anytime somebody is challenging that belief. And we now have no room to grow or understand differently because we've locked ourselves in that little box, you know? So to, to answer your question, absolutely. I, I do try to share when I think there's a, a opportunity to share and the right space to share. I almost always will very lightly voice my disagreement and why. But I also understand, like I said, not everyone's ready yet. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense me trying to offer an understanding to someone that is closed off to it. 
Yeah. Right? I have no desire to try to prove myself right. My desire is to help someone expand their understanding. And I don't want to burn a bridge in doing that. Because if I burn that bridge and make someone feel attacked or judged, I can no longer influence them. Right? To me, there's a difference between a conversation of your mind and a conversation of your heart. A conversation of your mind is always trying to make someone wrong or prove yourself right or even get someone to apologize. A conversation of your heart means I want to influence who you are at your very core so that every interaction you have from this point on is different. That's a conversation of your heart. When you have two conversations, when you have a conversation of your heart, no one leaves that conversation as the same individual that went into it. And I'll just say this because it's important. In our speaking of the truth, this, the author of this quote, it's a guy called Anturo Ali. And he says that truth without compassion is cruelty. So we have to be authentic and we have to speak our truth. But in doing that, we need to be really sure not to make people feel separate, judged, or other and understand somebody's, be compassionate towards someone else's conditioning. Mm -hmm. Because it's not a matter of I'm right and you're wrong. It's a matter of what serves the greater collective here? How can we expand the consciousness of humanity through our individual lives and relationships, mm -hmm. you know? Powerful. Okay, so in your own experience, um, do you think that the pursuit of wealth is inherently bad? Short answer, no. Um, you know, I think, for, I couldn't really speak for myself. I don't see myself ever doing something driven by financial success. I, I, I would be greatly unhappy if I did that. I think that there needs to be an element of purpose that at the very core that drives something. With that said, it needs to be where we live in. It has to be financially sustainable. If not, it's going to become heavy and daunting and um, make you really unhappy. So I think there needs to be a balance. You know, when I'm um, after mystic hemp when i closed the hemp store which really was not financially sustainable mm -hmm. it was just um all passion all heart mm -hmm. um never really made any big set of, of money but taught me so much so that was the other end of the spectrum right and then from there i opened the recycling business first one in trinidad too well first oil recycling business i mean some people might say they were doing it before that, but I started collecting waste cooking oil. Oh. And when I started doing that, of course, my family and everyone, no one thought it was a good idea. I put everything really? I had into that business. And, um, and yeah, everyone thought I was throwing money away. Well, you going to collect waste cooking oil. You're going to put everything to be a garbage man. What's going to happen? And, <laughs> you know, I had this, um, this idea of making biodiesel and I flew to, Colorado, of course, to learn how to make biodiesel and then came back and realized, well, making biodiesel involves methanol and I'll probably blow myself up. So 
I then converted my vehicle to run on waste cooking oil. So for quite a while, I drove a vehicle that ran on waste cooking oil and smelled like French fries and popcorn and that kind of stuff. And from collecting oil for that vehicle, I then realized, well, yeah, all this waste cooking oil has been poured down a drain. And that then sparked me to form this, this business, which was, uh, in my opinion, highly sustainable and successful. It was in, for me as an individual adult, probably the time in my life where I, where I was most financially secure and comfortable. But uh, I chose, after a few years, I chose to sell it because there was a lot revolving around that. And those um, that staff and employees to me were like family. Mm-hmm. And I just felt that I couldn't take that business where it needed to go. And that was not uh, as as financially um, stable and as much possibility as it had. That wasn't a future I wanted for myself. So I ended up selling that business. And what that did was now give me the ability to, one, build a home in Parliament so I didn't have to pay rent and worry about those expenses, but also give me the ability to dedicate full on 100% to building this community that revolved around yoga practice and making lives of people better. So, you know, when it comes to financial wealth and seeking financial wealth, I would invite people to question, what is their real driving factor? And not just say an answer that sounds right or makes them sound like a humanitarian, but really and truly, what drives you? And I think that's a real question. If all you're driven by is profit, 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 that's a massive red flag. But I do think, you know, I recently was introduced to this concept called conscious capitalism. And we always think of capitalism as a bad thing. Even up until recently, you hear with capitalism, it has this massive negative, nice. negative vibe to it. And in being introduced to this idea and this concept, and I have to say there are some major corporations in Trinidad trying mm-hmm. to shift culture and perspective. And they, they are now recognizing, sure, it takes time, you're talking, we have to now undo decades, if not centuries of corporate programming, right? But there is a shift in culture that's trying to, to push more towards the well-being of people and the impact on society over profit. Mm-hmm. And I remember once watching... Uh, a speech by, I forgot the guy's name. He's the founder of Whole Foods in North America. Mm-hmm. And he was speaking at Google. And it was such an absolutely blow mind talk. It's about an hour and a half. And he's one of the founders of this movement called Conscious Capitalism. Okay. And it's, um, I went out and I bought these six books, none of which I've read yet. But... Um, to answer your question, I I don't think the pursuit of wealth is bad. I think we have to be very honest and authentic with ourselves as to what we plan on doing with that wealth 
and what is our what is our underlying priority and purpose in doing that if if he's seeking of wealth is just to serve our individual needs and desires and wants and leisure and when i say individual when i refer to individual identity if i have kids and family my inner circle that's still part of my identity mm-hmm. right but but how about serving something bigger and larger outside of that and i think if our priority is just to serve these individual needs in a circle's identities leisures and and desires and that kind of stuff um i would invite someone to look at that i would ask you question how are you going to use this wealth to serve th- something greater than yourself and in your pursuit of this wealth what impact are you having on the larger collective you know i would argue that a lot of people are in the pursuit of wealth what do you think about society that has programmed people to operate like that yeah it's um it's been for so long right it's it's been that way for so long to me at the root of it is not to, it, it comes back to this sense of this obsession with individual identity and let me connect some dots here not not like i just like ranting about this but it is i do believe this this programming of i am troy this is my body i am my individual is at the root of all us misaligned in the world because for one let me say that there's no way you can convince me of that to me personally i there's no doubt in my mind that i am something far more than my individual body and identity now what that means is somebody you know i i had a podcast here day with a guy who's an atheist and that conversation was so good um but he wanted me to prove he wanted to know how i knew there was existence after i leave my body how can i prove that how can i say i know that for truth and fact well and i don't want to go off on a tangent here either but the fact is that we need to look change our perspective towards that i know i exist beyond my body because i know after this conversation kristen and jerome are no longer same individuals and i am no longer the same individual because christian and jerome now live within me so everything i do from this point forward you live in my actions my words and my thoughts therefore you are the resonance and vibration of your relationships you are the resonance and vibration of your life energy cannot be created nor destroyed so i'm not even talking about a sense of afterlife or heaven or hell we are energy we are resonance we are vibration there is no troy what i embody now is troy not to sound like a, a mumbo jumbo hippy dippy right, space right, cadet right, right? Yeah, but right. what i embody now as troy contributes to the collective evolution of human consciousness i will live forever my contribution will live forever in that evolution of human consciousness therefore I understand I am not really my body. Now here's this don't get me wrong human individuality is important right a human identity as a individual is important to say it was not important was would be to say human experience is useless mm-hmm. right and clearly it's not it has a purpose. But if I let that overcome me 
and I don't recognize that I am not actually my body, then here's that healthy unconscious programming that happens. And I'm not going off on a tangent. I'm going to bring it back. The unconscious programming is that when I leave my body, I cease to exist. If everything society tells me is that I am Troy and this is my body, I am my body, in so many ways that is our programming, then unconsciously what I'm telling myself is that when my body ceases to exist, I will cease to exist. So here's the next step to that programming. I am going to do everything in my power to meet my individual needs and desires and preserve my physical body and my well-being, even if it impacts others in a negative way. Because when my body ceases to exist, so will I. You understand what I'm getting at? And there's a story out with, with, um, that I love to tell. He's an old Indian saint guru. His name is Neem Karoli Baba. And I'm not big on gurus. I'm not big on saints. I am very selective and careful in, in that guru culture to me can be really toxic. But this one individual is, I can put my finger on, he was Steve Jobs' guru. He was a guy called Krishnadas Ramdas. Some people might know about his guru. And um, there's so much about him that to me points to the fact that he was dialed in. He was connected to God. He was channeling God. And there's a story where all the, all the Westerners and the disciples, Western and Eastern, who came to him, he used to send them away. And they would all want, to, want him to teach them something to do, teach them a yoga pose, teach them breathing, tell them what to do. And his only instruction to them was, you know, funny enough, I, I wrote this on a tag on Instagram this morning when I tagged Odyssey. Um, his only instruction to them was love people, save people, remember God, tell the truth. That's, that's all he told people to do. You want to practice, that's your practice. Do that. But what I'm getting at is this. They have a story where a group of people came to him again. He was sitting in a corner and said, Baba, Baba is like teacher. Baba, tell us what to do. Give us something to do. How do we find God? And he said to them, meditate like Christ. So they all ran off and they're like, oh my God, she gave us something to do. And they run off and he told us to meditate like Christ. And then they had a moment where they're like, well, how did Christ meditate? So they come back to him now and they say, well, Baba, you said to meditate at Christ, but how did Christ meditate? Mm -hmm. And the story goes that he paused for a moment and he looked at them and tears started to roll down his eyes. And he says, Christ lost himself in love. And he said, that's how Christ meditated. He lost himself in love. So to connect your dots here, I believe that the only time we understand what it truly means to love is when we can get over ourselves. We get over this obsession with individual identity and preservation of, and this sense of meeting our own needs and desires and wants. When we begin to understand that we are not a body 
and that our priority does not have to be the preservation of our individual identity. That's when I begin to see and acknowledge you as part of myself. I see you as an extension of me. I recognize that we are part of one whole, you know, any teachings of yoga, the, the very foundation and, and goal of yoga is that realization of interconnectedness with God. It's about seeing God in everyone and everything around us. But to do that, we have to begin to dissolve our obsession with individual identity. So, does that make sense? In the uh, yeah. So I think that when that, that obsession with individual identity um, overcomes us is when we get tied up with meeting my needs, my desires, my ledgers, all these things that, that we're fed at from society that we need to have to be happy, which is really just all, you know? Yeah, all fluff. It's not true. Who or what is God to you? Hmm. You know, the very first chapter of my book is called Redefining God. And uh, for one, I, I think it's important to understand that God does not belong to religion. And there are a lot of people listening to this that on hearing that right away might be triggered. But hear me again, religion did not create God. God existed before religion did. So therefore, once you understand that, then we have to let go of the narrative. God existed before religion existed. Religion does not own God. And for me, God is formless and nameless. And every single individual has their own right to define who and what God means to them. I, from a really young age, have never allowed anyone to tell me who God was. And I would never attempt to do that to anyone. I think everybody has a right to know God in their own personal way. Now, here's the other thing. Knowing something and being told of it is very different. I can tell you about how great this kombucha bottle is, right? And this kombucha. But you can never know it unless you experience it for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think for generations, people have been told what God is, what God wanted, who God was. God was even given an agenda, right? So while we have a lot of us that have been told of God and we choose to adopt that narrative of God, that's very different from knowing God. And when you know God, when you come to know God, you, it's through a very personal experience. So when I speak to God, and of God and about God, I can call God whatever name I want to call God. So can you. But my understanding of God is that there's no separation and there's no otherness and there's no limit to his love and understanding. More so, this might trigger a lot of people too. Hopefully they finish your podcast, right? <laughs> Is that, um, you know, religion in a lot of ways has fed a narrative of fearing God, right? God fearing. In my opinion, you can't get to know someone or even love someone 
you're afraid of. That's impossible. That's impossible. It's powerful. I don't want to fear God. I am not afraid of God. I love God. Now let me put another seed here to consider. If you were in a relationship with someone, right? And that individual did everything you wanted them to do. They made you happy and they served you in every possible way. But then you found out they only did those things because they were afraid of your reaction. They were afraid of your punishment and your judgment. Is that the kind of relationship you want? To me, that's not what God would want. God wants us to serve each other and to serve him, whatever that is. Not because we're afraid of his judgment or reaction, but because we see God and divinity everywhere and we're so overcome and filled with love for that, that we all we want to do is serve that. Because get this, Oh gosh, we're gonna open up a can of worms. <laughs> open it. Get this. If I do what God wants me to do because I'm afraid of judgment or punishment, then my love is self-serving. So is it really love at all? Because then I'm only doing this to protect myself from me from a judgment and punishment that selfish. Yeah. It's selfish. It's a selfish love. Yeah. It's not really love at all. Yeah, that's like going to church just because you're scared to go to hell. Exactly. Or, exactly. Or going and be charitable because because you want to get into heaven. You're yeah. not really doing that with love in your heart. You're doing that to serve yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So I would love, you know, and someone someone asked me once um, when I was doing a book reading when I thought my book was done two years ago and I did a book <laughs> reading. It's come very far since then, but. They asked me, do you feel that we need to use the word God? Because I use the word God outrightly. And um, when I speak to God, I speak to someone's understanding of God. Um, And I understand why a lot of people have this resistance to the word God, right? And I'm also speaking right now to anyone that does refer to religion or God or whatever, we have to acknowledge the wrongs and misalignments that have been done in the name of religion. We must acknowledge that and not turn a blind eye to it. I understand why people have a resistance to the word God. And I acknowledge that. But here's my personal take. Can people use other words? Sure. I don't care what word you you use for God personally. I use a lot of words, but I use God a lot. And here's why. Because if I choose to call divinity by another name, then I create separation between me and those that believe in God. And if I don't use the word God, then I cannot realign the misalignments that I've done in the name of God. And I cannot correct the misperception and misrepresentation of God. So for me, I'm going to use it with God. And um, if you say right now, Troy, we would prefer to use another word, I'll be like, cool, I'll use another word. 
Once you know that, that to me, there's no separation, you can change the name of God. But in reality, no matter what you call God or how you view God, the source of creation is the same. There's one source of creation, regardless what you want to call it or name it. By you calling me a different name, as if you decide, well, Troy, from this point forward, I'm going to call you James. Doesn't change who I am. You call me what you want. Unless my ego, of course, is tied up to name Troy. And I don't believe that that divinity has these egotistic qualities that we as men have. And you talked about getting to know God for real. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do we get to know God? Um, I, you know, I think for every individual, that's different. But um, I can say that I do believe it requires quiet. It requires silence from time to time. It requires introspection. You know, in the, um, in the book, I have a chapter called Heirs of the Heart. And what it refers to is that we have two main voices. We have the voices of the mind and we have the voice of the heart. Now, of course, I'm not speaking to the physical heart. I'm speaking to the heart about being, the essence about being. And I believe that the heart is tuned to the frequencies of God. I believe that divinity speaks to every individual. It wasn't, God never stopped speaking to us. And he doesn't choose selectively some people to speak to and some people not to speak to. I think he speaks to us all. Divinity speaks to us all. I think what happens is, you know, I describe it like this in the book, and I think it's actually absolutely brilliant if I don't say it so myself. <laughs> but it's like the same way um, sketchy, interconne- sketchy internet connections and too much users and too much input can, can interfere with internet downloads. Mm-hmm. If he voices of a mind... If voices of your mind are too loud and too rambunctious, they interfere with the frequencies of God. And all we hear is the voices of your mind. Voices of your mind are concerned with what will people think? What will people say? How are they going to treat you different? Will you be accepted? The voices of your mind are very concerned with our individual identity and acceptance in this world, right? And it's not that they're bad. They're not bad voices. They're very necessary voices. But if we don't have a relationship to these voices of the mind, they become so loud that we can no longer tune into the frequency of God, the voice of God. So to answer your question, Kristen, I think someone for someone to begin to deepen their relationship to their understanding of God. They need to create time and space in their lives to just deepen a relationship to the voices of their mind and their breath and be able to quiet those voices. And they're also social voices. There's external voices of your mind and the internal voices of your mind, right? Because society is bombarding us with all these ideas of who we should be, what we should say, what box we should fit in, what we should do, what success means, what success doesn't mean. So you have external voices of your mind and then you have internal voices of your mind that try to 
decide, well, how do I fit in? Where do I fit in? Will I fit in? You know, and we have to really look at these and start to cultivate a relationship with them. You know, anxiety is a voice of your mind. Depression is a voice of your mind. All these things are voices of your mind. And I describe your mind like um, a lover or partner. And a lot of people, you know, when they, when they start to entertain what might be labeled meditation, they, um, they often say, well, I can't shut my mind up. I can't do this. Well, you don't want to shut your mind up, but you go home and tell your partner to shut up. Probably not a good idea, right? That's not relationship. That's control. And the, to me, one of the biggest things of starting to create a relationship with the mind is just spending time. Listening to what comes up in your mind, listening to your repetitive, chaotic thoughts and trying to understand why is this thought coming back? Where is this coming from? What am I afraid of? Because here's the thing. If you have two people in a relationship and one is neglecting the other and not creating time and space to hear or understand how they feel, they're going to have to scream and shout and get very loud to get the partner's attention. But the more you sit and listen, the less your partner has to scream and shout. Mm -hmm. Your partner feels seen, it feels understood. It doesn't have to shout. All it has to do is whisper, you know? And I think I look at the relationship to mind in the very same way. The more you sit and spend time with it and try to get to understand it, the less it has to scream and shout. And the less it has to scream and shout, the quieter your mind gets, is the more it opens you up to these channels, to divinity, these channels to God. As someone who recently started to meditate, that, that is very powerful. That is very powerful. Because I, when I'm meditating and I get a thought comes in, I would acknowledge it for sure, but I'll just can't try and kick it out. You know, just so I could try and clear my mind. So I'll definitely take that into consideration. Yeah, it's, I, I would tell you, I would invite you to, um, don't, first of all, don't judge it, right? Don't push it away. Maybe gently just come back to your breath. And as long as you come back to your breath, then you're present with your breath and mind goes quieter. Then your thoughts come back again. But I think it's important when you, when you see these thoughts, a very similar or same thought coming back, coming back, coming back, coming back. Then you have to, we have to ask the question, well, where is this coming from? Why? What am I afraid of? You know, and I often talk about this experience I had where I spent 10 days of silence, which is called a Vipassana retreat. And the first five days of that experience was absolute torture. It was agony. And I didn't have a meditation practice at the time, right? I had a yoga asana practice, postures, but not so much a meditation practice. So I jumped in the deep end, right? And I say in my book, I almost drowned because those first five days were absolute agony. And all my, my mind would do is write narratives about girlfriend cheating on me, Business going bankrupt, grandmother going to die, there's going to be a war, you're not going to get back home. All these thoughts. And I felt it physically in my body. My body started to ache. My energy got really low. Sitting on that cushion was the last place I wanted to be. I, 
I was at war with myself. And then there was a moment when, you know, there's a guide and the guide said something. And I wish I could remember what he said, but I can't. But I remember what it initiated within me. And it brought me to recognize that all of those thoughts that had been plaguing my experience for the first five days were all fear-driven. They were all driven by fear. And I had proclaimed before that I was someone committed to love. I didn't want to be governed by fear. But in order to be committed to love, you must acknowledge and create a relationship to your fears. If not, they're going to get into your way. So for me, one of the biggest steps or biggest things about a meditation practice is um, starting to look at the thoughts, not shut them up, look them up and look at them and be like, what am I afraid of? What's really going on here? You know, and get the bottom of it. Because I think your mind just wants to be understood. Your mind just wants to be heard. True. Yeah. True. I actually wanted to talk about that silent retreat thing, so I'm glad you brought it up. What, what kind of influenced you to even go to that? And how did you find it? And what is it? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, like in detail. Yeah, well, they have different, um, different approaches to it. But it's, a, it's called a Vipassana retreat. And they have something called Goenka Vipassana, then you have Buddhist Vipassana, and I think your experiences are both a little bit different. I was introduced to it because I already started my journey of being a yoga teacher or a practitioner of yoga. So within that, there were um, a lot of people that had done it, or I heard talk of it, and I was like, wow. I was like, what better way to really get to know yourself? You know, because, um, and then last year I went into experience of solitary darkness. And that was a whole different experience in itself. That's like Vipassana on steroids, time a hundred. Right, talk about that just now. Maybe. Yeah, but, um, you know, what better way to get to know yourself than really sit with your mind and your thoughts and remove everything else. So it's the the one I did was a Buddhist for personal retreat, and it was actually in an old church that was converted into a Buddhist center in I want to say Boston. I want to say it's Inside Meditation Center or something. But um, pretty much your your daily regimen was first of all you have no music, you have no devices, you have no. I don't even know if I had a pen or a paper. No pen, no paper. So no distraction at all from your mind, mm. right? And pretty much you would get up on a morning, sit for a, a few hours. Then you would eat in silence. So you're with a group of people, but there's no communication. You can't even really, like, there's no even really winking or eye contact or none of that. You just all, all in the same space, can't talk. So you wake up, you sit, you eat breakfast together, you sit. You lunch together, you sit. And then the one I did, you actually had two or three, maybe two hours on an afternoon where you could go and walk in the forest or you might be able to go and do your yoga practice, your asana practice, but all in silence, right? And then you would come back, you would sit, and then you would eat dinner, and then you would sit, and then you would go to sleep, and then you'd wake up all in the morning and do it all over again. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But what was the, I know you talked about the first five days was rough. What was the, what was the journey like for those five days? And then after, I guess you, you met with some kind of inner peace after those yeah, five days. Um, 
Now, this is 15 years ago, he talking, I say drug in my memory here a little bit. But one thing I do know is that those first five days, several times all I wanted to do was get up and bus, get up and walk out, right? And be like, hell with it, so I get back home. Because your mind plays tricks on you, right? Your mind, when it gets uncomfortable, will, will cultivate all these narratives that try to get you to bail. You know, and there's a yoga teacher called Bikas Ayinga that he says, when you want to get out of the posture is when it actually begins, when it gets uncomfortable. And that to me also applies to life, right? When you want to get up and leave, your, your growth and transformation is not in what is comfortable. Your growth and transformation is in what is uncomfortable. And we grew up in a world, of course, I'm going to connect it back now to the human identity crisis, right? Because our unconscious programming is self-preservation, mm-hmm. we want to be comfortable. We don't want to feel threatened or uncomfortable because that means we're putting ourselves in a position where our well-being is threatened. Make sense? So it's hard for us to step into your uncomfortable, but that's where our growth lies. And a lot of time in our relationships, whether it be a conversation that we need to have or our opportunity we have that is the outcome is unknown or whatever it is, we like to run from it. We like to avoid it. Um, but if you can move towards it and step into it with grace and be present to it, it holds so much growth and transformation. It might not work out. We might get our ass handed to us. But that doesn't mean that experience was bad. Doesn't mean that it didn't serve a purpose. It shaped us. It molded us. You know? And learn a lot from going into the discomfort. Yeah. Whether you're successful or not. Yeah, of course. It's, you mm-hmm. see, it's not about being successful. Here's the, here's the reality, Christian. There's one certainty in life, and that is that we will die. Definitely. We will leave our body. There's no safety in, in life, right? So if there's no safety in life and the absolute ultimate reality and truth is that you will leave your body, then how can anything be a failure? How can anything be a failure? Because you're going to learn and grow from it. And in the end, well, when I leave my body, do you call that a failure? Because I didn't obtain immortality. You know what I mean? There's no such thing. True. I think failure is like a social construct. It's not not really a real thing. Yeah, of course. And failure only exists. You know, I could keep coming back to it. They want a song like a stuck record. Failure and measure only exist because we've been told that me and you are separate. So we compare ourselves and we measure ourselves to everyone and everything else around you. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason the concept of failure exists, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a very, like, I'll try to put it as best as I could in words because I have a very, like, logical approach to life, right? And I am the kind of person who thinks that everything has some like cause, like nothing just happens, right? Yeah. Everything is cause and effect. And like what you were saying earlier with religion and how like you kind of have to detach religion from God, I agree with because 
the way I see religion is I see it as just an explanation for things that people may not have a full understanding of and they seek comfort in it. Yeah. Because I talk about like, when I think about things like back in the day, people would see like lightning and then be like, oh, it's a God. It's like the God lightning is just whatever. But then over time, we realize your lightning is just lightning is um, potential difference, whatever the science terms is. So like, I don't know if that in your eyes is good or bad having that kind of outlook because that could be sometimes be a little cold in the way that you approach life when you just look at things very, like for what they are and you don't see anything more. Well, well, check this, uh, Jerome. It's like, at the the very everything that we know in existence, not again song like a space cadet to people, but it's science. Our bodies, this table, this mic, everything in vibration, energies and molecules vibrating, right, to create this experience that we see light waves and whatever you wanna, however you wanna explain it. On a scientific, logical, right? When people talk about logic. A lot of time when we, when we want to prove a point, we stop at one point in the timeline of existence that reinforces that point. This also goes for when yeah, people say tradition or ancestry, right? Somebody might say my ancestry is Middle Eastern, your ancestry might be part African. Sure, if we stop at that point in any timeline of existence, but why are we stopping there? Why not go all the way back? Because the more we go back, we realize that the source of our existence is the very same source. That we're actually the same and we're not separate or different at all. Our ancestry is the same, right? But we stop along a timeline that reinforces our identity, our opinions, our individual identity, right? And that's kind of off topic, but it came up because of this. When you talk about logic, there's nothing about our existence that is logical. There's absolutely nothing. You And this is why Einstein, to my understanding, even when he was dying, acknowledged the existence of God because he said they had no, there's no other way. Because no matter what your logic is, no matter what scientific explanation you give to anything, I can always ask the question, how and why? How and why? How and why? How and why? A miracle is defined as an occurrence of something that cannot be explained and has to be attributed to a divine agency. That's the explanation of a miracle. Now you tell me, how did our existence come to be? I can't tell you that. Nobody can. No one can. Because at the same time with the cause and effect thing, with cause, there's like a cause and effect. But if you keep going back, cause, 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 at some point, you can't, it, it, it passes the point of explanation, which is exactly what you just said. That, so that, I, yeah. I agree with that part for sure. That's my point. So it's like, um, my response to that would be, you know, the mind is so powerful that whatever your mind chooses to believe becomes reality. If somebody chooses to believe that there's no higher intelligence of any kind whatsoever and that our existence as a speck 
within a universe that's within a universe that's within a universe that's millions of light years wide that we cannot even observe. If you believe, if someone believes or comes to believe or chooses to believe that that is an accident, all right, I can't, I can't help you then. I really can't. But, um, and I'm not, I'm not out to tell anyone what to believe, but the reality is that if you look at our existence and really zoom out mm-hmm. as the only things that have to be calculated in absolute um, relationship from a lab level of chemistry and gases, the planets not colliding to gravity to whatever, the sun, the moon, solar system, you look at that and you tell me that just happened by accident. And then, you know, even, even um, you know, like Big Bang. Well, all right, what exists the bang? Something has to exist the bang. <laughs> but, but then somebody cuts us, all right, if there was a God, well, where did God come from? Follow us in? So, mm-hmm. in, in my, go ahead. Well, I mean, I could kind of go against that a little bit, whereas like... Challenge, challenge it, absolutely. It's like, so, the, the size and expansiveness of the universe also speaks to the small chance of our existence when you think about it because if they have all these universes all these planets out there that we that are observable that we can't identify life as we know it on then that kind of proves the point of how rare we are you know like we we exist because we are exist and we can't really, hmm, I don't want to say it properly, boy, but it's like we're trying to, because we're here, we're trying to say, well, why aren't there other people like us there? But you can't really look at it from that angle. We're here because things worked out for us to be here. Yeah. Versus it, have, it having to work out elsewhere. You know what I mean? So if there's like a 0.001% chance of us becoming who we are and our world developing and humans evolving or whatever, that happened and we're here now. And all the other planets that are barren or there's nothing on it. Yeah. Those are the other 99% where life did not develop. So because we developed any chance of us developing so small, we feel like, oh God, there has to be some reason that we are where we are, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, like, I, I agree with you in the sense that there may not be a reason as such but there's something behind it. Like there yeah. has to be a source of it all. Yeah, to me, agree on that. There, there is something behind it. Now, I can't say there's a reason or not a reason or that it's a test or that whatever, whatever somebody wants to say. But I can tell you one thing, um, Jeroen, and that is, Everything we do, every action, every word, every thought, creates the world we live in, impacts the people around us in a very real way. We are the creators of the creator. We create the world we're living in. So just with that understanding, well, to me, you know, like these these kind of questions aren't often questions that, 
on conversations. These kind of conversations are not conversations I really lean towards having because here's the ultimate truth. We are clueless. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. So I'm not right. You're not yeah. Right. I'm not wrong. You're not yeah. Wrong. And, and this conversation to me is somewhat pointless. It's not going to, it's not going to give me any clarity on life because we don't know. It's a, don't know. What I do know though, is that my actions, words and thoughts change your world every single day. Yeah. What world do I want to live in? What impact do I energetically want to contribute towards humanity? That's what matters. That's all. For me, I think we should be concerned with. Because everything else, we don't know. Even when we we talk about religion, we can't really say why religion started or how it developed or where it came from. Some might say it was people trying to control and govern the masses and have them act in a certain way and behave in a certain way. Sure, so these things start to evolve and come up. Who knows? We don't know. I'm not personally not concerned with any of that. What what I am concerned with and what invite um, people to consider is acknowledging the responsibility that every word, action, and thought changes the world. So what world do we want to live in and how are we impacting and changing the world? Mm-hmm. That is what matters right now, you know, and it's um not... Um, in no way pushing a yoga agenda. I mean, it is part of who I am, so word yoga keeps coming up, right? But um, the absolute, the word yoga means union, right? It means to yoke or join. And if I were to ask some people, you know, you hear this in movie town, Tristan, well, what are we yoking and joining? People would say, well, myself with God or light or dark or all this, all this other stuff, good and bad, whatever, mind and body and spirit. Sure, all of that is right. But um, there's a teacher called Osho. He's an old philosopher teacher. And I remember reading once that he said, well, you can't join what was never separate. Right? You can't join what was never separate. And... So I've come to view the understanding of yoga as more of like a realization of our interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. It's a real, not so much a joining of, of ourselves or joining with divinity. It's a realization of our interconnectedness and union that around this table, there really is no Christian, Jerome, no Troy, right? But what I'm getting at is that in the present moment, right now, it's the only place a union can exist. It's the only way we can all be present and really impact the world is right now in this moment. The second we start to think about past or future, those are all fluctuations of the mind. Those take us away from how we're contributing to the world right now. And, um, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about the power of now and living in the present moment and blah, 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 blah. I think we miss the majority of what that means and how that shows up in our lives in so many ways. And I'm not in conversations like this about creation and universe and religion are unimportant. They're not unimportant. But it's important for us to recognize that there's, there's so much more important than things that need to be spoken about. And that is how are we impacting and changing the world right now? Because we can't change what 
has done or been said or whatever, it, it wouldn't even really impact so much whether I knew where creation started or how it started. How is that really going to change my existence? You know, I, I can't really see that happening too much unless that brings me to recognize how interconnected we are, which, which is something I think that is at the root of what we all need to come to realize. Yeah, I think it might... I think it might bring it might also bring across a sense of humility and like accepting that you're ignorant to what actually has happened, and you will only you will only be happy if you accept that right? because you can't live your life just studying. Okay, well, how does that happen? Because you don't know. Yeah, and people think they should know it all and they have all the answers, but sometimes if you don't have all the answers, nothing really wrong with that. Thing. Yeah, and we can't. Read. I think as humanity, we are so ignorant and limited in our thought process. You know? Of course. Yeah. I don't mean to touch on it again, but um, I don't know if we really answered it properly, but what do you think kind of caused this disconnect from um, us feeling this interconnectedness? Because I personally have had that, and it took me, I don't really want to talk about it on camera, but I will. It took, me, it. It took me going to Mexico and doing ayahuasca in the forest with a shaman to realize how interconnected we all are. Yeah. And I don't know where that where, where that started from. Like, where, where did that disconnect start from for me and for everybody else? Yeah. To, to me, I think um, the only thing I, I can relate to is it comes back to this sense of individual identity. When we were told that we were individuals and when, when we were fed that narrative that we are separate and other, you know, I, I would like to believe that for a lot of prehistoric civilizations, they didn't, they didn't um, attach to that. Mm-hmm. They understood that everything was communal. Everything was communal, including, not to stay put here again, including relationships. There was no ownership of one individual. Mm-hmm. You understand? You can own a woman. Woman can own a man. Um, but in, and of course, this would not apply to them all. Naturally, there are differences in cultures. But um, I'm really fascinated with the cultures that understood community existence rather than individual existence. And um, I don't know where it began, but I could only say that it had something to me to do with the emphasis of individual identity, mm-hmm. which then made us separate which then implied ownership or achievement or success and then created all these levels upon which we measured ourselves in society. Mm-hmm. And then everything began to build on that, you know? As you said, that relationship thing, I kind of want to touch on that too. So, oh, God, I'm in trouble. Do you think also what ties into that is group identity as well? Because when you find people who might align with your little individual sense of self and they reinforce your sense of self, then it makes it even worse. And then it's more of like a us versus them versus you versus everybody. Absolutely. So that is what I refer to as inner circle identity. It's still identity. It's creates separation, right? Um, I might say, well, I don't just think about me. I think about me and my family and people that live in Paramount. But then that just means I've now created, like you said, I've created a we and I've created a them. Mm-hmm. 
rather than a collective us or a collective we. So we also need to be aware of that. Is this this group identity also creates separation, you know, and but it builds on this sense of individual identity, you know. Right. So yeah, let me jump into that relationship talk. Oh you said <laughs> you said that back in the day they didn't believe in owning a woman. Well, I can't else. can't talk generally, but there were cultures that surpassed that. Yes. Okay. So is that something you believe in or practice? Are you asking me, Christian, <laughs> if I believe in polygamy? <laughs> um, no. Well, I I mean I can't say. I won't say it's. Unnatural. It's not for me. I believe in um, monogamy. I believe in being one with one person at a time. That is what saves me at this point. Whether I will judge it as right or wrong, or judge polygamy or whatever as right or wrong, I have no place to do that. I believe for every individual, it's a little bit different. They may need different things in their life. Um, I also believe that. You know, you look at the idea of marriage and where it began and whatever, and you go back. And in a lot of ways, marriage began as a business deal, right? That's how marriage, yeah, marriage actually began, right? But um, for me, I forgot my train of thought where I was going. You threw me off for that question, <laughs> but um, I oh yeah, I do think monogamy has a role in our society. I believe that right now I look at the world and if we did not have this idea and concept of monogamy, I don't know. I don't think we're, we're emotionally evolved or emotionally mature in the world we live in today to safely maintain a construct outside of that. Okay. I think it may have served humanity hundreds of years ago. I don't know, but because it saved humanity hundreds of years ago, doesn't mean it'll save humanity today. I think it might be all out chaos. I don't yeah. think we're, we're ready for that. And for me personally, it's all I can speak to. I believe in being with whether, not necessarily one person for your entire life, but I believe in monogamous relationships. Mm-hmm. And I am concerned that Again, everyone's introspection, everyone's experiences, they have to be really authentic and honest with themselves. We mentioned that growth and transformation happens in what is uncomfortable. If every time a relationship becomes uncomfortable, you bail and go to another partner or or seek another source of comfort, then... You have to question. I won't question it for you. That's not my business. But I would invite someone to question whether there's avoidance in that, whether there's disassociation in that when things get uncomfortable. So I don't know. I can't say. I've never been in a relationship that's been polygamous. And... Would I want to be open to it? I don't know. I, I, I don't like to say never. I, might, I want to leave room for me to grow and evolve. But mm. I would say that I, right now, I'm monogamous. <laughs> and I don't, I don't anticipate that changing. Okay. All right. 
No, I think that's a big, that last part you said is a big problem, especially with, I, I would say, our generation. Like, we, we don't want to work, like, back in the day, people used to be set up for marriage. Oh, my family and your family know each other. We both have money or whatever, or they marry each other, and then they work it out, their problems and stuff. Now, we kind of just looking for the perfect partner one time. Instead of, as soon as we have some problems, all right, it isn't working out. Yeah. Well, I mean, even, even that to me, Kristen, is a little different, right? Because I'm 43. I've been in a lot, uh, quite a bit of relationships, <laughs> but they've all been relationships. Mm. I'm, I, don't, I don't treat um, romance or anything like that in a casual sense. For me, they're, they're all monogamous relationships. And I believe that one of the narratives that has infiltrated what we call romantic love that is not, is not good is that, or, or is doing a disservice is that, remember, love is not ownership. Love cannot exist if there's not freedom. So if me and a partner are in a romantic relationship and these things come up that are uncomfortable and we try to work them through or whatever. Of course, one should not bail and run away from, from what is uncomfortable when things get hard, right? That's where commitment comes in. But at the same time, there comes a boundary. There's some people that live majority of their lives severely unhappy in a relationship that stifles them simply because that's what their told marriage is supposed to be. And, uh, you know, so if you love someone, there has to be that freedom present with that. If they find a moment or draw a line or draw a boundary and decide this is no longer serving me and is stifling and limiting who I can become, they should be free to choose otherwise. Mm -hmm. Right? Because I don't believe real love can exist without freedom to do so. Someone, freedom must exist for love to exist. Does that make sense? So I I think with regards to um, your generation, as you reference, it's important to look at if something is avoidance, if you are avoiding what is uncomfortable, because romantic relationships are some of our biggest teachers our absolute biggest teachers if you're in relationship with someone that can create a safe space and still show you your shit Mm -hmm. that has so much growth in it right so much growth there for that um and we have to question and look at our own avoidance you know i i remember that there was a relationship that ended for me some years back And right away, I was like, holy crap. I ran to a therapist. I was like, am I afraid of commitment? Am I afraid of commitment? Tell me, show me if I am. Is that? And they were like, dude, no, you're not. Get out of your head. And they drew a very straight line and they laid it out for me and it showed me what was happening. But it wasn't that. It wasn't that I was afraid of commitment, right? It was that I was very clear in all aspects of my life very detailed and very clear on what I wanted. But when it came to to relationships that I allowed so much more space for possibility and acceptance 
and I wasn't as clear on what I wanted as in my life, right? And um, that, of course, took a little while for me to realize after believing in possibility for, for a little bit of time, you realize, well, maybe this isn't working kind of vibes, you know? But he, he helped me see some things. Mm-hmm. But it's important that we begin to question how we're showing up and always in that state of introspection, you know? So I would just invite people to look at what is, if maybe it's avoidance, maybe it's not avoidance, but what is really happening. And then, of course, there's a social narrative that you have to get married and have a family. And that if you don't, you're in some way less important or less successful. It's a choice. You get to make that choice. No one else makes that choice for you. You know, and I've seen so many people not even realizing they've been conditioned by narrative. And this, this dream that society put on them that they don't even realize, well, where did that dream come from? Where did you ever get the impression? Who told you you need to get married at 28 years old and have three kids and live in a white picket fence? Who told you that? Where did that come from? All of that is programming. And we just need to create a space where we can question our programming and, and ask ourselves, what do I truly want? You know? As we, on the topic of love, what is your definition of love and what was there a definition you had before it and if there was a definition you had before that's just different to the one you have now what made that switch feel like you make me call out some book spoilers here boy um, <laughs> i don't believe this is giving me real hard for some people to hear I don't believe it's possible for love not to exist. I believe love, a sense of love, is very source of, of our existence. I believe that love, like God, is everywhere, everywhere, even in the darkest aspects of our society. And somebody in Ohenets could be like, what is he talking about? Like, look at all the suffering and pain and inhumanity in the world. How can you possibly say that love lives there? And I think that what we've done is we've locked love into a box. And we said love looks like this, and it's flowers and rainbows and butterflies and fairies and whatever, cushy chocolate roses. Um, But here's what I mean, and I think it's it's a different perspective on how we look at love that I think holds so much power. Rather than asking what is love and what is not love, we need to be asking what is being loved. Because there's always love, right? There's always love. But there may be love of power, love of greed, it might be a selfish love. It might be a self-saving love. It might be a love of money. It might be a love of inflicting pain on someone else, which is a love of power. But there's always love. You see, if we look at a situation and say, let me use this bottle, for instance, there should be a hungry plant lady kombucha bottle, by the way, but it's not. <laughs> Give a little plug. Um, if we look at this bottle and say, this bottle is devoid of love, then it can never become love. 
it's dead. If I look at this bottle and I say, well, there's love here, but it's a self-serving love. It's a selfish love. It's a love that causes harm on everyone else. Then I can take that love and reshape it and remold it and give it a new programming where we can now expand that love outward to everything and everyone. But it keeps love alive. So I like to say that love is always present. And I would invite people to start to ask, what is being loved? Every decision you make, every choice you make, what are you loving? What are you serving? Because I don't think love is black and white. And to answer your question, if I were to define what love is, I think to embody love is to see divinity in all aspects of creation, in the eyes of every human being, in all of creation, and then to act accordingly. And that doesn't mean we can't disagree. That doesn't mean we can't hold up a mirror to people and draw boundaries and walk away from people, right? Love is fierce, love is courageous, love is not afraid to rocky boat and facilitate transformation. And furthermore, I do not believe you can love someone or something unless you're willing and ready to lose them. Because if you're not willing and ready to lose them, that's not freedom then you're maintaining that individual or that person or that thing for your own benefit. Mm. To truly love someone or something, you must be willing to give it up. You must be ready to let it go. Because let's say, for example, now, Kristen, that you are a friend of mine and we grew up our whole lives together and I love you. I love you both, I do, regardless, even though we just met like two hours ago. So if you love someone, you don't just tell them what they want to hear. Your duty in loving someone in that relationship is to facilitate the growth and transformation, to help them become a better human being. That means there may be times where I have to show you and tell you things you do not want to hear. And I might have to risk losing you to do that. That's love. You know, we have this idea of love as cushy and flowery and hugging and comfortable. Love is not comfortable. Love is in your face. It is face. It is ready to come on this podcast and have conversations and see things that people aren't ready to hear. You know, and that's part of what you guys are doing. So I applaud you for that too. Thanks. Answer that. Is that um loving someone? You can't truly love someone unless you're willing to lose them. Is that also in regard of like death? Yeah, of course. Okay. Because that death is not in question, right? That's not in question. But um, so we're going to have to let people go. You know how much times... Now, I want to put a pin here, a disclaimer. Sometimes when I talk about death, I often have to ask myself, am I disconnected or from this or am I somehow being a hypocrite 
not hypocrite might be a wrong word, but point being, I have never lost someone close to me, mm. that close to me, um, where I was conscious enough to feel and understand. Right. So I, I am well aware that I speak of death from that space, mm. that I haven't yet experienced that. When I do experience that, I can only hope that I can embody and this understanding that I speak of, right? I might not. Human experience, who knows? I may plummeted into despair and, and agony. But um, death is the only finite. Death is the only surety. And if someone is clinging for their life and suffering in human form, you know, I had this conversation again with someone late, lately and they were sharing with me that if there's someone that needs to go because they're suffering in human form, and we're only clinging to them because they're part of our identity. They define who we are, and we can't imagine our lives without them. Um, that that can be deemed a selfish love. Selfish. Mm -hmm. You know, it's powerful. I was yeah. gonna talk about like euthanasia and thing, like when people like their granny or whatever is like on a we call those machines that like, keep you alive, like life, whatever, yeah. life support or whatever, and they're there for like a month suffering but they just can't let go any doctors at some point they ask you like you want to pull the plug yeah and most farms like no yeah keep trying but they know yeah. that it's of no avail but they just want them there yeah and you know it's sure selfish but it, they say it says love but that's not really love yeah there's so much different layers and elements that talking about the, these things i think it's important to recognize that they are always um so many different layers and aspects that every single situation is different, mm -hmm. you know, but it's just things to consider. And you're right. Mm -hmm. No, we, ha we have to ask that question and really look at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the other thing is, I mean, for me, oh, we could, this could be our next, <laughs> next hour. And see what I, what I'm about to pop here. Right. But get this. I was going to say that, of course, if we understand that we are not our bodies, then when somebody leaves their body, it doesn't actually mean they cease to exist. Mm -hmm. And we know this, we speak about this. It doesn't mean that person is gone. It's impossible for that person to cease to exist when they leave their body because they live inside of you. Mm -hmm. They live inside who you are, what you learn from them, your experiences with them. Every time we have experience with someone, we leave unchanged. We leave changed. That person becomes a who part of who we are. Mm -hmm. It is impossible for an individual to cease to exist. Right? When we remember them, whether we consciously remember them or not, our experiences with them has conditioned us. It has shaped us. They live forever within us. They will always be with us, right? And I know for some people, that might not be a positive thing. They might have negative experiences with someone. Mm. And the thought of them having to carry that is not a good thought. I get that. But if you have a relationship to a negative experience in which you can cultivate growth, transformation, compassion, forgiveness then it's no longer an active experience. It shapes who you are in that moment and makes you a better individual. But what, what landed for me is that I didn't mention that happens when we recognize that we are not our physical bodies. 
This is huge. What happens is that it's impossible for you, Kristen or Jeroen, to ever do anything to personally attack me. Mm. I cannot feel personally attacked. Ever. Right? Now, hopefully I'm human, so I might make mistakes and emotions might take over. But my point is that if we understand that we are not our physical bodies, you cannot personally do something to me. There's no such thing as a personal attack for two reasons. I am not my body, so I know it's not personal. It's not that you have anything against me as an individual. I just happen to cross your path and be part of your curriculum of learning. And in that, I may have to experience some pain of suffering to help you grow. Also, I also come to understand that it's not you doing something to me. It's your conditioning. It's not truly who you are because you are not really your body. What you embody has been conditioned by your experiences and that is what is showing up. It's not actually who you are. So, so once we begin to understand this, that is no such thing as a personal attack. You know, I say sometimes, and of course I like to stress, I'm human, I do have it figured out. I get angry, I lose my, my, my cool all the time. Every day, hopefully less and less and less. But it is very hard to bring up anger in someone. In, in me, for instance, it's not very easy to get, for me to experience anger. I think anger is an, a misplaced emotion. For me to experience anger, then someone has to do something to me personally as a personal attack. To me, that might bring up anger. Outside of that, we have hurt, disappointment, pain, those kind of things that we misplace as anger. You know, but, and, and if we don't know how to process hurt and pain and suffering and disappointment, or if we don't have the tools of communication in which we can share those emotions with someone, and we can't process those emotions, that turns to anger because we don't know what else to do. So our, our go-to is to react with anger. But if we understand that someone's not personally doing anything to us, that it's just this dance of conditioning that we've come to experience some form of growth and transformation, then nothing's personal. And if nothing's personal, then get this. Forgiveness is not an option. It's inevitable. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Um, so if we aren't, I've been thinking about this recently, actually. If we aren't our body, and like, I was thinking about it, we aren't even our thoughts, really. Because I think this table is black because somebody told me this table is black. Yeah. Right? So what, what are we? Well, that is, um, I can't answer that question. I could give you my thoughts yeah, your on, view, it, your my view on it. Um, 
You know, and this comes back to, that was a question I asked, I mentioned last year, I went into experience that they, they, they call a dark retreat, right? Yeah, yeah, that's where you go into, some people do it solitary, some people do it in groups, but where you go into, I went into a room, solitary, and a complete absence of light. Right now, my question, and my intention was to stay there 10 days. I came out on day three. Right. And I do experience, I do, I know that I experienced what I absolutely needed to experience. Right. There was nothing about my experience that was shorted or do I feel defeated or less of because I don't stay 10 days. Okay. I believe those three days for me were on oh. steroids. I was intentionally messed with and screwed with and effed with in my head. All the circumstances that revolved around my experience were shaped to break me. And mm -hmm. it did break me. That's a whole different story. But, I want to hear about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, but I went into that room because one of the questions, two things I think drew me into that room, right? One of them very egotistical. But the two things that drew me into that room, one was, was recognizing that everything we think ourselves to be, everything we define ourselves by, is the external world. We define ourselves by everything in the world around us, whether it be a table, someone else, an opinion, I'm a son because I have a mother, or I'm a father because I have a son, Everything we think ourselves to be is defined by the external world. Mm -hmm. So if you remove the external world, who are you? If you remove as much of the external world as you possibly can, that was my question. Who are you? Right? The other thing that drew me into that room, I would tell you, is as a so sober individual for the majority of my life, you know, you mentioned ayahuasca um, earlier, and there were years years ago when I remember I was felt like I was being called to want to do ayahuasca, and I had this um, this meeting with a shaman at the time, ex ayahuasca shaman regarding something else, and I was sharing with him, and he said to me, "Ayahuasca is not for you." Really. And I, of course, was taken back. I was like, why? What do you mean? He said, you can do it. Nothing's wrong with doing it. It won't harm you. He said, but what ayahuasca is going to show you, you already know. Because mm -hmm. you've been doing this work for 20 years now, for a very long time. So he brought me to question my desire to want to go and experience ayahuasca because a lot of the time plant medicine and psychedelics and all these experiences are fed to us through society as some kind of ladder we have to climb at some kind of step we have to experience to evolve our consciousness in some way and even subtly it makes us feel that we know more we are better than those who don't experience this and that is bs so that comes up because 
part of the reason I want I went into this experience is because it said that when you go into darkness for prolonged periods of time, you go into natural natural states of DMT release mm-hmm. and natural states of natural states of psychedelic experience, right? Um, and sure, there's states within yoga and meditation where you can glimpse yeah. these things, and I have, but never to that to that extent of of saying there was. You know what I mean? Like ayahuasca experience or DMT release. Part of me wanted that. Part of me was craving for that under sober head without the use of external substances. That was ego-driven. That need and desire was ego-driven. Oh, yes. I know I'm getting off on a tangent. And I remember and you asked me about consciousness and who we are and what we are, right? So... Here's one of the things I took out of that experience, which is why I brought it up. I went into that room questioning and acknowledging that we define ourselves by external world in every way. What I came out of that experience is, that experience understanding is that we, wording is different, and I'll explain. We are our relationships. Meaning that we are the vibration and resonance of our relationships, right? You can't see it. You can feel it. And that, like all states of energy, cannot be created nor destroyed. It merely changes state. In that is our immortality. In that we live forever because the vibration and resonance of our relationships not just changes people around us, it changes all of their experiences and their conversations and their relationships. And collectively, this web becomes, we begin to realize this web that we are part of, which is in itself immortal. We get to contribute to, to human consciousness in a very real way. So in a nutshell, I explain it as what we are is the resonance and vibration of our relationships. How are we making people feel? You know, is um, that is who we are. It's not something physical. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that earlier. Like if you really consider the impact that you could have on somebody else, you, even if you aren't trying to impact them, yeah. and then you think about even if it's something small, like they could, you could tell somebody something, they could think, they could change their mind about something, change their behavior, and then they have a child, and then they treat their child a certain way, and the way they treat their child could have been different if they didn't meet you. And then now you have an impact on their child. So even though you may not live on as you, as you're saying, your impact will always be there. And we all have our impact on each other, whether we know it or not, because yeah. it, it just goes through yeah and Christa, I mean Jerome brother it's like it's not even in conversation it could be an energetic exchange you have with someone it could be a smile yeah. it could be opening a door for someone make the day yeah it could be walking past a homeless person on the street who's accustomed with people just giving him money giving him money and stopping for a moment and looking into his eyes and saying yeah I see I love you I appreciate you how are you right it could be that little energetic exchange which don't even have to be spoken 
That's how powerful we are, that our silence can change the world. Yeah. <laughs> our absence can change the world. That's true. That's beautiful. So do you think that um, things like karma are like selfish? Because you're thinking about, you know, it goes around, comes around. If you're doing good, so good is done to you. I think there's a misunderstanding of karma um, in, in modern day um, understandings. And I can't even say that my understanding is correct, right? But karma in Sanskrit means action, right? It means action. To me, all karma means is that every action, word, and thought creates a vibration and a resonance that has an impact on the world around you. That's all it means. I don't see karma as punishment. Like what you do is going to come back to, to bite you. But here's the reality. You're not separate. So if your choices impact someone else negatively, I'm not surprised that that negative vibration is somehow going to come back and find its way back to you. But I don't believe that it's some kind of punishment, right? Um, I believe it's that just the intelligence of our existence is cause and effect. Mm. It's the fact that energy cannot be created, nor destroyed. It merely changes state. It comes up again and again and again. So what you put out there, the vibration and resonance you create, that you, allow, that you make people feel, that's going to at some point, you're putting more of that out there in the world. So if you put more of that out there in the world, the chances of that negative vibration coming back to kick you in your ass is, is a, it's increased, right? Um, but I don't view karma as such as some kind of personal punishment for deeds and actions, you know? And I yell this, this podcast could go on here alone, you know? Yeah. And so I don't know. I, and I would say, guys, that I'll always come back, Brett. We have a lot to talk about. Yeah, remember you coming back after the book. Yeah, yeah. Oh, before the book, when it's about to launch. Oh, when it's about, okay. That, and that's October, November. So look out for it. Okay. okay. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, you know, I'll always come back. I love these conversations, but I do agree that what we spoke about today, it's so much for someone to take in, in one podcast that yes. I wouldn't want to lose them. So it's up to you all if you want to wrap and then you do this. I, all I don't over mind again. wrapping. I, I think two hours and 20 minutes is yeah. solid. So here's, here's what we'll do, right? I have, um, uh, advanced readers list, which means it's normally when you self-publish, right? You send out um, your book, you create this advanced readers list. And the agreement is that these people get to read the book before it's released. Please. please. <laughs> but but the, the flip side is that all you need to do is when that book is released, you go on Amazon and you write a review. Honest review. Might okay. be negative. Doesn't matter but an honest review. And then um, you just become part of the street team if you believe in this book to help promote and share a book. So what we can do, and that is happening in August. So what we can do is in August, I'll share a book with you all in PDF. Of course. And then you soak it in and whatever. And then when it, right before a book is released, so a week before or whatever, maybe before so it could be released, the episode might be released 
on a release or around the release, we can then um, talk about the concepts in the book, much of which yeah, we've already great. spoken mm-hmm. about today, go into nice, more yeah. detail. I you guys can take notes and, and we can talk about certain things. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be cool. I have yeah. a feeling like you might get a great review. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean... Because if it's about what we've spoken about so far... Yeah. The book, Kristen, is... Um, I mean, this has been four plus years. Really? And crafting and recrafting and rewriting and questioning my own um, views and beliefs. And <clears throat> what I wrote, does that represent what I what I believe, like I might be interpreting one thing in my head, but reading words on paper and realizing I didn't actually say that. I said something else. (laughs) And I've been working with really amazing editors and um, it's been quite a process. But what I'm saying is that I know this book is gonna, could shake a lot of people. Some of them might not get past chapter one, (laughs) Um, but I can stand by this book with my eyes closed and my heart open and saying, I am in this book. This represents everything and I will stand by it no matter what. So, um, you know, it's whether you like it or do like it, it's food, it's seeds for thought and conversation and it's really important things that need to be spoken of. Yeah. yeah. Anything, anything that took you four years to write, I want to, I want to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to read. Yeah. I tried that so much, eh? Yeah, pleasure, well, brother. Was, that was it, good. That was, was powerful. Yeah, it was, um, it was such an honor to be here. So thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. And um, I would just say, if you know, I'm open to convos and questions. And if anybody is spurred by any of this and they want to reach out, they could find me on Instagram or troyhardy.com. And um, like we said, there's a book coming out. And um, I believe that I'll be back when that book is about to come out and talk some more. Sure. Yeah. Okay, guys, I'd just like to say thank you for tuning in to another episode of the LSE Podcast. Today, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Troy Hadid. This was a very, it's a very interesting episode. I would like to say that I learned a lot, and I'm definitely going to go home and think about it. Um, this, the reason I say it's different is because this was not how a podcast usually goes. It's a lot deeper, a lot more philosophical, a lot more thought-provoking, and I could say on behalf of both of us, I mean, look at him. He looks like he is internalized and everything that just happened. And I could say that we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. And I hope that Troy's words have inspired or made you all think more about how you view things. And um, maybe I hope that you learn from it and be a better person after. So thank yeah. you for coming thanks on so much again Love. thanks for having me guys mm-hmm. always and thanks for listening yeah you guys thank you so Love. much guys thank you thanks so much really appreciate y'all thank you for your love and support um if you all enjoyed this episode please like comment share subscribe to our channel and look out for the next episode do it these guys doing beautiful things <laughs> do it, appreciate do it. it Troy. take care guys until next time <laughs>